Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McGrobbie. Today we're talking about mental health and suicide rates among young adults and teens in Indiana and mental health uh, in general. We have three guests with us today. One is in the studio, Bernice Pesca-Salito, the founding director of the Ursa Institute and senior research program leader for the stigma and social, uh, stigma and social exclusion. Bernice has been with us a few times before. Yes. Happy to have you back. Thank you, Bob. And also joining us over Zoom, Leslie Holvershorn, who is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Indiana University, and Heather or- Ormiston, clinical assistant professor in the IU Psychology Program, director of school-based mental health research and training initiative. If you have questions or comments, you can send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also find us on what used to be Twitter, now X. We're at Noon Edition. And you can join us on the phone. You can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. So welcome to all of you. Since uh, Bernice is here in the studio and I can see her eyes, I'm going to ask her first uh, a really general question about the state of um, mental health issues, you can take whatever direction you want Mm -hmm. um, in Indiana. Yeah, I I think it's really important to sort of set that kind of context for us because two decades ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation at all. There have been fundamental changes in both how uh, parents and children see their own mental health or even talk about their own mental health and how schools are acknowledging the mental health crisis among Uh, youth in our society. So one of the most important things that we've been talking about is the rise in suicide rates among that group. I have done suicide research for 40 years, um, and when we first started doing our research, we couldn't even look at data for people under 25 years old because there just wasn't enough numbers to do anything with. And now it's one of our prime areas of focus. So we really have a change here that we're experiencing. All right, Leslie? Yeah, so I think in addition to what Bernice is talking about with the rise in suicide um, with young people that's really happening all around the nation, we're also seeing um, a crisis unfold throughout the nation and and as well as our own state uh, related to access to care. So there are factors, you know, changing uh, the suicide rate, but there are also a series of, um, you could call them like economic drivers, maybe, um, that uh, the setup of the mental health system that have been highlighted during the pandemic. So, I mean, it's been a, it's been a failing system for a long time, uh, no question about that, but the surge in demand throughout the pandemic has just shown a light on it, um, so much so that national organizations, I'm thinking, for example, of the Children's Hospital Association, which is a national group, um, has is called you know basically a state of emergency around uh, child mental health, um, and that has to do with just severe lack of availability. Um, we can get into why that is, but lack of availability of resources um, for both kids and adults who are seeking um, psychiatric and substance use disorder services. Um, the workforce is not really prepared to handle um, the you know the, the both the volumes as well as the specific needs. I mean we have a, a problem in in terms of access to to what I would call evidence-based services. 
Um, and uh, people are also more interested in seeking these services than they have before, which is good. But that means more and more people are finding out that, you know, you can't just call and get an appointment with a psychiatrist and and have them take your insurance. You know, th these sort of things are really coming to light in a very big way. And, and, it, and it's it's really a crisis at the moment. All right. And Heather, your uh, first takeaway. Heather, we can't hear you. I am so sorry. Um, to add to the points that have already been made, I think the importance and the role that schools play in addressing um, and supporting student mental health, I think, is incredibly important um, to the access that Leslie was talking about. Um, schools, a lot of times, can have the potential to reduce those barriers to access for families and students that need that support. Um, they also, I think, play a really critical role in, in addressing um, stigma around mental health and seeking those services, but also in suicide prevention and those early warning signs. Um, and I think the the state of school-based mental health services, both locally here in Indiana, as well as nationally, um, there's just such a shortage of school-based mental health providers. Um, unfortunately, that's we, we have it as a, a critical um, access point, but yet we're really underserved in that area. Um, so that's definitely, you know, something to add to the conversation as well. Yeah, yeah. I want to stay on the the funding question because I know there's been there was a lot of discussion in the last legislative session about increasing funding uh, in in health areas in general. But there was uh, there were increases uh, in funding for mental health. And Leslie, you might uh, it, I'm sure all three of you can comment on this. But Leslie, to start with you about where you see that landing and and what kind of an impact it's making, particularly when we think about access and training. Um, uh, of providers. Yeah, well, I think the fundamental concept to understand here is that um, it's very simple. Um, if you look at the cost, um, it, it costs a, a mental health provider, whether they be a social worker, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, they might work in a, a lot of different settings, a private practice or a, a hospital or um, the VA. I mean, you know, you can imagine a lot of different settings. The bottom line is the cost um, that it, um, that, that, it, you know, it really costs to run a service, uh, meaning the rent, keeping the lights on, hiring the staff, paying the clinicians. Um, if you just add that up and then look at the amount of money that comes back in, in terms of reimbursement from, say, an insurance company, there is a huge difference between those two numbers, a very, very large difference. So in order for a provider to be able to deliver mental health care, um, they either need, if they're going to take insurance, um, they're going to need some other way to supplement the difference between those uh, amounts. And so um, what we find is that that means that it's more or less impossible for a lot of folks, um, mental health clinicians, to uh, take certainly take Medicaid, which obviously pays the least. And Indiana has a, pr a problem with our Medicaid rates being quite low relative to other states. And so, um, you know, you would need some way to kind of subsidize the difference, right? So what what happens, um, there are federal programs that do that. There are county dollars that go into that. Obviously, the, the federal government pays the VA system, which has a large large um, footprint. Um, but health systems, you know, just have to take money from, you know, that they might earn in other areas like surgeries or something and then apply that to mental health. So what that means is um, nobody's interested in getting in the business and, um, and no, nobody's financially motivated, right, to do this. And and unfortunately, that if you look at health care, I mean, that really shapes um, the development of programs, right? Like we're not talking about orthopedic surgery today for a reason, right? We're talking about um, something that requires significant investment, even to just provide ba basic services. And so um, that that would require big changes at the state level, at the federal level. I mean, this is a problem everywhere. Um, but currently we're just discovering like we've really underinvested in a lot of ways. And so it's just it's just, you know, kind of a, a really fragmented um, system. So obviously it's good that there's attention on this and you referenced the fact that there have been um, attempts at the you know legislative level to uh, funnel funds you know towards this and obviously that's great news. I, I don't think it's clear yet exactly what the funds from this most recent session will be used for um, exactly. Um, but uh, there I think everyone would agree to really substantially change the system. We need way more than that. Like this this needs to be something that I think voters, um, you know, t and legislators tolerate um, dip dipping into the coffers, right? A lot more than we have, and and currently, I think that's something that 
um, voters slash legislators, both federally and state, you know, are not probably comfortable with that degree of spending. So, um, so we're just in a situation where um, it's really the kindness of someone's heart, you know, that they decide to invest uh, money into um, this business model that just, you know, loses so much money every time a patient is seen, basically. So, yeah, let me follow up on that because Senate Bill 1 really is a piece of landmark legislation with $100 million going into the mental health system. It's landmark if it's the first of a series of those because we really need to build and rebuild the system as it exists. And the other thing, the other point I think that's really closely aligned with what Leslie is saying is that think about return on investment in terms of you know productivity lost you know people not graduating from college not getting their high school degrees the amount of money that we would put into and invest in our children is minimal compared to what we lose in society if we don't care take care of these children so the return to investment for things like senate bill 1 should be great and like leslie i don't know exactly what they're doing with um, the money there but i do know that the ursay institute um, has been asked to um, help evaluate and, and understand the rollout, both in its strengths and things that need to be fixed, of cri- crisis mobile teams throughout the state. So there are going to be 18 new programs uh, for crisis mobile teams, and they're at various stages of development, and we're going to watch to see what happens. So I think that is something else, that if we go in that direction, rather than sending youth that are having behavioral problems to jail, which is where a lot of these kids show up, rather than showing up in Leslie's office, which is where I want them to show up. Well, not all of them, Leslie, but um, it would be such a much better way to think about life in our state. Let me give our contact information uh, quickly, Heather, I'm sorry, but uh, contact information 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at Noon Edition. Sorry, I wanted to get that in there because uh, you've already covered a lot of territory that shows how serious this issue is, and I'm hoping that we'll get some questions from our audience. Heather, was uh, you had something you wanted to say? Yeah, I think um, speaking to the point of, you know, focusing on early intervention, I think is what's so important. And I think, you know, again, going back to that school lens of things, I think it's really where we have, it's just such a natural access point. We have access to those children all day, nearly every day out of the year. Um, And so I think the more that we can focus on identifying those students that need mental health services earlier on the front end, um, you know, so we can make those referrals to either community-based mental health agencies or, um, you know, having school-based mental health professionals working with those students to prevent from, you know, those individuals from, you know, having significant problems later on, I think is such an important piece. Um, And I, um, I'm not totally sure where that the Senate Bill 1 funding would go. Um, Hopefully some of that will go towards schools. Um, I know that there have been some efforts at the federal level um, passing funding related to training grants to increase school-based mental health professionals, um, as well as just researching school-based mental health more generally. Um, I think we're kind of in jeopardy of losing that funding again. Um, It's just been passed in the last couple of years. So um, hopefully focusing more on that early intervention and prevention piece is what's what can help address some of this as well. Heather, if I could follow up on that, could you take us into, uh, you know, obviously not by name, but take us into a middle school program or a high school program um, and and just explain how they've changed and what your focus is over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years. Sure, so within the school system, we tend to operate under a system called multi-tiered systems of support. And that's basically, a blending of social, emotional, behavioral, academic, kind of merging all of those areas together um, and setting up what we call a tiered system so that we're operating at what we call the universal level so that we're able to really identify students that need additional services prior to waiting for significant issues to happen. So we're implementing things like universal screening measures for both academics and social emotional for mental health needs. And we're identifying those students and then we're able to actually provide those direct mental health or social emotional services to students in the school system. And what we're finding is that when we're able to implement services 
on that end, certainly we're not going to catch all of them, but it's but operating on that more preventative and intervention type format, we're preventing a lot of students from getting to where we're really in crisis mode. And we're just kind of operating by putting out fires, if you will, of this student's in crisis or this student's in crisis or by focusing the efforts on that MTSS system that identifying that early identification of students that need support and then getting the services to those students as quickly as we can and as consistently as we can within this context of the school day is really it's been really helpful to identify those students and get them the services that they need to prevent those more significant outcomes down the road. Yeah, so I wanted to add to that that Indiana really has some amazingly dedicated people working on this. Everything from, I think, the work that Leslie's doing trying to create an institute to make sure that people who provide care are using evidence-based care because it's not just having care. It's having quality care and having good care that has people coming back and families building trust. Um, there's also the whole Child Summit, which is uh, amazing to go to where, you know, hundreds of teachers and school administrators, providers come and share information in the state about what's going on. You know, down here we have a 25-year history, at least, of the Indiana Institute for Disability and Community providing early on um, care to and guidance to students with autism. And then on the social side, one thing that I'm uh, very excited about is we've now tipped the 100-school mark in having peer-to-peer empowerment programs through Bring Change to Mind. So Indiana really is in their pitching on this, and we need the support um, from the state and from, um, you know, parents to really be able to do what we need to do for children's mental health in this state. Yeah. I want to talk a little more about, I mean, Bernice, you've just touched on a couple of approaches, and Leslie, I know, and Heather certainly can speak to what kind of, if you will, best practices, better practices, new ways of thinking about how we provide these services, um, how are those evolving? And, and and that's probably one question in its own right, but also uh, extending it into how that might impact what uh, your average teacher needs to know, what your average parent needs to know, and, uh, and even some new uh, paraprofessional occupations that we might need to add to it. But let's, if we can just start kind of with the, what, what kind of really best practices are evolving? And yeah, I'm, Bern- oh, Leslie, go ahead. Why don't you yeah, kick yeah, us I'm off here? Yeah, I'm happy to talk through that. Yeah. So actually, um, this is a, uh, I don't, in some ways, an easy question to ask because we've just dedicated about nine months to putting together a strategic plan for pediatric behavioral health for the state of Indiana. Um, Riley was the facilitator of this plan, but um, actually 200 stakeholders from a variety of different um, you know, agencies, government, uh, you know, groups, uh, advocacy groups, et cetera, um, joined in on this effort. And so um, it's been top of mind for me now for, for the last year, really, what is the smartest way to um, utilize the resources that we do have in the state? And I, I will say a couple of highlights from that plan um, include things like harnessing models that are a little non-traditional, things like integrated care. And what that means is that instead of you know, calling a psychiatrist, going in to see them in their office or a psychologist or a social worker, you know, one patient, one clinician, which is the traditional model, but unfortunately we just don't have the workforce to be able to accommodate that model for everybody. Um, so these integrated care models um, allow the children and to stay with their primary care doctor or provider, uh, you know, could be a nurse practitioner, for example, um, in that setting and receive um, that that person would receive support from a child psychiatrist. Um, but, and, but, but for example, that child psychiatrist might support 100 pediatricians, right, by taking a call, for example, from Indiana's Behavioral Health Access Program for Youth, a, a phone line. It's called a Child Psychiatry Access Program. And so um, the the child's medication is prescribed by their primary care provider. They have that primary care provider has a lot of support whenever they need it at their fingertips from a child psychiatrist. Um, And then behavioral uh, resources are added into that primary care setting. So there might be a therapist in the office or there might be a virtual group um, available providing, you know, some type of evidence-based psychotherapy. So rather than, 
you know, having one psychiatrist see 10 patients a day, like is traditional, say, um, now the pediatricians across the state are seeing hundreds of patients a day um, to handle behavioral health needs. And that's precious resource, which is the child psychiatrist, is supporting many of them, but able to have a much greater impact. So that's one um, one example. There's a heavy um, emphasis in the in the strategic plan on um, prevention. So looking earlier on in um, into childhood, supporting parents more, providing um, more venues for parents to understand um, best practices in terms of parenting, right? Because you would parent a child with a mental health condition differently than you would with a, with a child who doesn't have one. And most of us are not born knowing those. I certainly wasn't uh, those kind of strategies. So they can be taught and, and parents are really hungry for that information. So creating more venues for parents to learn that kind of information. Um, it, and it's and it spans all the way from, you know, outpatient preventative type services all the way up into thinking about does Indiana need more specialized high acuity services. So I'm talking about hospital based services for um, young people who have very complex medical and mental health problems, for example, or intellectual disabilities, for example, um, autism, uh, plus other behavioral health needs. Th those are the individuals who are really, really very underserved in our current system. So, um, you know, that that plan's freely available and, um, you know, we, we would be happy for anyone to read it. Um, and part of that is is um, getting there would be advocacy, workforce development, things like that. So, so there's been a lot of attention just to summarize, you know, on a variety of strategies that um, have, that already exist in the world. We're not really creating much that's new, um, but utilizing those strategies in a smart way that allows us to sort of expand our resources more than we ever have before. And it's an exciting time because there's so many partners coming together working on this. So we're just at the start of this new um, period of, of development of a lot more infrastructure, but really thoughtful infrastructure going forward. And this really is a national movement. Um, I was just in New York City for Project Healthy Minds um, Day, Festival Day, and Gala. And, you know, their slogan is, it's a new era of mental health. And they're right. Um, and, and when you talk about the children, you talk about teens, and you talk about college students, and then millennials who are already in the workforce, they are different than when we grew up. They want to be partners in this. They don't want to just be done to. And that's why we're so excited about, you know, any number of programs that really are peer-to-peer -peer where, you know, if you want people to be engaged, you get those people that you want to change or that you want to get involved right in the middle of leadership. And that's really a new movement. And that really started with the millennials. Heather, here's a question that's come in from our producer um, that I think is for you. How do schools manage mental health issues for children who are transferring schools or leaving to the next school? What does the communication look like? That is an excellent question. Uh, thank you for that. Um, it really, there's not a standard answer. Unfortunately, it really depends on the school and the systems that are in place, as well as the personnel that are in place that are be able, that can handle those types of transitions. Um, so um, some students and I actually recently did a survey looking exactly at this, um, and it was really kind of a patchwork of communication and service transition and things like that. In some instances, folks at the sending school would contact the receiving school, the, the school that the child was moving to, whether it be for um, just an age-based transition from middle school to high school, or if the student was moving. and. Um, in some instances, those folks would contact a, the school counselor, a social worker, a school psychologist to kind of let them know, hey, we provided these services to the student, or these are the supports that we had in place that were working really well for the student and their family. Um, in other cases, students just kind of move on. Um, they don't necessarily have those transitions supports in place. Um, for students that are eligible for special education, for example, or if they have a 504 plan, for example, those those are more so documented. And so those are the things that can have the, the capability to transfer with them from school to school, um, whether it's within district or out of district. But for students that have really significant mental health challenges, 
those types that aren't eligible for those services, um, those types of services, it's not a guarantee that they get transitioned. And so I think that's something that's really significantly lacking, especially, um, you know, speaking from the medical side, the community side, when we have a lot of different providers that are involved with an individual um, and we aren't able to, or we're not necessarily communicating that well um, to where they transition, then there's some instances where we're just kind of starting from scratch, unfortunately, um, or when we could be more proactive and putting some supports in place right from, from the beginning to try to help ensure that student success. How can you, how could you address that or how could you fix that issue? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, you know, and it, it is a great question. I actually um, currently have a, a doc student, a doctoral student that I'm working with right now that this is her vision. She sees this as a gap. Um, and I think when we're communicating with other school psychologists across the nation and just um, mental health providers, they're saying like, we need this. And so um, her vision is really to develop these mental health action plans to where it is kind of where this documentation of the strengths that the student brings, the needs that they have as a way to help that transition and facilitate that across time um, and across location and things like that. But as I said, there isn't anything that's standardized right now um, in terms of that care coordination, um, but we're, we're working on it. We're trying to put those supports in place and seeing what we can do to help facilitate that better. All right. Thank you. Bernice, I want to talk a little more about your work in stigma because I mm -hmm. think that is um, uh, it, it, it clearly has is playing a role here. I mean, not only in terms of how each of us think about mental health issues, but it's it's pervasive and it's probably a piece of what uh, stands in the way sometimes of legislators and and others um, really trying to address these questions more um, these issues more directly. Um, say a little more about what you're doing with the Ursay Institute and particularly how that applies to these situations when it comes to to adolescent particularly yeah. adolescent mental health. Well let me start with some good news because it's always good to have some good news <laughs> and um, you know we've done the only uh, at the Ursay we've done the only national uh, study of how the American public responds to child and adolescent disorders and the good news is is that Americans are much more understanding and empathetic and less stigmatizing toward child and adolescent disorders than they are to adult disorders. So that's a good thing. Um, we do see, however, that the more intimate the venue that the child is participating in, the more the more stigma. So, for example, you know, you ask Americans with a child with depression or a child with ADHD um, whether or not that it's okay for that child to be in your child's classroom, right? And they're like, yes, that's fine. And, you know, should they, you know, be in activities with them? Maybe. Uh, should they be in their elite sports team with them? Maybe not. Should they be their close friend? No. So we see that sort of gradient of intimacy that we see with adults as well. But um, we're really excited because we now, in 2024, will be doing the first restudy of that. So we'll be able to see how Americans have changed. And we're optimistic that we're going to see some change because for the first time, we've done four uh, adult studies. And for the first time in 2018, um, we saw the first drop ever in stigma in the United States. It was only for depression, but it's a start. And we're hoping, or we're hypothesizing anyway, that um, the uh, COVID-19, with all its tragedies, was really a silver lining for mental health, where the loneliness that people experienced um, really opened the eyes of ver many Americans to the importance of mental health. So at the Ursay, we're trying to do a number of things to try to understand what's going on. Uh, we just finished a set of 10 focus groups with about 40 to 60 high schoolers across the country. And it's important because we get a sense of whether or not the things we're doing matter. And so a lot of schools have set up these safety rooms or quiet rooms. In some schools, they're working well. In others, they become the, the sort of font of gossip about those kids. And for other teachers, it becomes a place of disciplinary punishment, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to understand, how, you know, we can't just have a room. We need to know what's going on in that room, how that room is staffed. We have to work on the climate in high schools and colleges in order to you know, make sure that the things that we do change now will take root. Because if we don't change the culture, then we can have these programs. And if for any reason funding might be lower at some point, you know, that 
that stigma can come rolling back. So yeah. I'm optimistic at this point, uh, mostly because of, I think the millennials down, as I've mentioned before, they really aren't going to take it. They really are very active about mental health and their mental health, um, saying a third of them in a study said that they're going to decide on where they're going to work. Um, they're, going to in, in, they're going to look at the culture of the workplace. And, you know, we know the workplace can be very toxic in many industries. So they could be a powerful force if we, you know, if they continue to be the voice that they are, they could really change things as well. Yeah. And they're the parents of, well, today and tomorrow, right? I mean, they're all, they're all in their uh, starting, uh, starting families and, and so forth. And so they're also the parents who will be putting pressure on schools as well. Heather, I wonder if you can talk more about how the kinds of things that Bernice is referring to uh, are changing how just basically how teachers are trained. Because it's, it's, when, when you're learning to become a teacher, it seems to me that uh, I, would, I would hope, uh, given where we are, that, that in uh, tr- teacher training programs that there's some attention being paid to how um, these kind of mental health issues can be handled more effectively. Is, is that yeah, happening? That's a great question. Um, it is. Um, and actually, slowly, I think. Um, so kind of historically, teachers have, um, have often um, said that they felt like they needed more training to be able to support students in mental health and to be able to recognize signs and symptoms and things like that. Um, a couple of years ago, actually, I appreciate the question um, because just a couple of years ago, I actually developed an undergraduate minor in the School of Education at IU. Um, that's it's a child and adolescent mental health minor. Um, so that's university wide. Any student can take that major, or excuse me, that minor. Um, and then specifically within the School of Education, teacher education majors um, can uh, take a concentration in child and adolescent mental health, and it's. Um, grown significantly um, in just a couple of years. Um, and it really, at the time that I put it together, there was really only two minors um, in the nation that focused specifically on child and adolescent mental health. Um, one was at NYU and one was at Alaska Anchorage. And so at the time that it was developed, it was definitely very new, very unique. And um, I just am doing a survey now of students that have declared the concentration or the major in terms of what is it, why, what was their motivation for for taking these classes? And so much of it is focused on because I really want to be able to understand my students, because I really want to be able to know what I can do to try to help students that are in my classroom. And so I think um, there's it's very slowly, I think, kind of changing. And I think maybe perhaps just in pockets. Um, I haven't done a search recently to see if there's kind of more classes related to child and adolescent mental health that have popped up um, specifically for teacher education majors. But um, I know the students that we have, at least within our program, have all spoken, um, at least the, the data that I'm getting, it's, they've all spoken really highly of, highly of it, and they appreciate having that perspective. And it's even including things such as like, what is the role of a school counselor or a school psychologist or a school social worker, and how can they help? And um, and a lot of times um, the students, you know, just having gone th- you know, through high school themselves are like, I didn't know that these people existed in my building, and it would have been really helpful to know that these were resources. So hopefully by increasing that awareness and training for our teachers, that's going to then filter into the schools where our teachers are placed down the line. I want to ask a really, I guess, a very general question. Uh, When we think about the um, issues of of mental health among young people, what are the contributing factors? Why have things, have things, I'm assuming things have gotten worse over the years, or are they just more recognized? What are the factors that, may push this. And let me be a little bit more specific, too. Is something like what's going on in Israel right now, something that's going on in Iraq right now, the divisions uh, that we all see in the news right now with young people, do those matter in terms of mental health? I I think they do matter because I think that the students, um, you know, the thing that comes to mind that I hear most from college students is the effect of climate change on their mental health. They're worried that they're not going to have a world to live in. And certainly they're concerned about, 
I have to say the average college student, and I would guess the high school student, is actually less well-informed about political issues. At least that's been my experience. Um, but in terms of things that really um, you know, are central to their concern about what their future is going to look like, and I'll just tell you a quick story. Uh, when we first started the Bring Change to Mind college program, uh, there was a group here of three women who had started an effort called um, a Culture of Care. Very important group, right? And I, you know, they said, you know, you're going to start this this college program. Go talk to them. And so when I was interviewing, I was talking to one of the women. She said, "Well, we are the most uh, stressed generation ever." And I said, "Well, really? Are you more stressed than the people who went through college during the Vietnam War? Are you more stressed than people who went through the Great Depression?" And she kind of looked at me and, you know, but the more I really have reflected on that since I think that was like 2014. And I think what's different about this generation is that those other stresses were collective. And so when that happened, um, individuals could group together and talk about, you know, we're against the war, right? Or, um, you know, like we all have to, you know, go around and collect metal for, you know, the Great Depression, you know, era or for World War II. And for these students or for these young people, it's internal stress. Like it's more internal stress than I've ever seen in this. So, so um, first when she said that, I didn't exactly scoff at it, but I was like, really? But now reflecting on it, there's something different about the nature. It's almost a, um, you know, a, a crisis-oriented internal and then external stress that they have, and they feel very alone in it. Yeah. Where, where's this internal stress coming from? Well, I think some of it's coming from the pressure that they feel. And and if you ask their parents, you know, they say, well, I didn't say they needed to do 14 extracurricular activities. Um, but when they look at college applications, there are 14 lines in the extracurricular space, right? And even, um, you know, I, I actually um, mentor a lot of uh, pre-meds. And again, the, the application, the common application for medical school, you know, we had a student who's now at Harvard Med. And at the time, he came in and he said, what am I going to fill in all these 17 lines? And I said, that's not what makes somebody that medical schools want. They want to see you become deeply involved in something and, and, be, and then end up in leadership in it. But that's not, you know, sometimes something as simple as the application forms say something very different to them than I think what people intend. So I think it's really, you know, across the board. Mm -hmm. yeah. Leslie, do you have an, uh, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I, it was very interesting hearing from a sociologist perspective on this issue. Um, in, the, in the psychiatry space, um, I guess it's a similar story. There was a study um, of children worldwide and asked, and it's, it's a recurrent study, but the most recent version, you know, basically asked, what's the thing you worry about the most? And it was a big surprise to the investigators that the most recent result for, for young children was, was actually um, climate change again. So there's this definite, uh, like, I think, high level of awareness about big, big issues that I think adults don't appreciate that kids are really tuned into and young people are really tuned into. I also think that um, the biggest change that has happened in, you know, in our lifetimes is probably social media. I mean, I, that probably could be debated, but um, I think if you look at... Um, when um, the suicide rate started ticking upward, um, you could just map on there like, okay, when did TikTok come out? When did Facebook come out? And you can just see the increases um, as well as things like firearm access, you know, all those things occurring at the same time. But um, there have been a, a number of sort of psychological autopsy type studies looking at young people who've died. And um, there's just a big role that, um, you know, social, I'm just using the term social media, but it's not just social media. It's sort of access to information that prior generations did not have access to, right? You didn't know if you weren't invited to a party, you know, 20 years ago, because there were no pictures of it online. So there's this um, decrease in, you know, isolation, and then it's sort of substitute for in-person interaction. So there's less um, kind of connection between young people. Um, and then there's this sort of need to be perceived as perfect, uh, like those that are on social media. And so I think that seems to be a really uh, common stressor. And and even um, in Indiana, uh, work that's been done to look at youth who've died by suicide, there's almost always a precipitant um, that's very close in time to when they died that um, has to do with some sort of social slide 
fight or you know break up or something that is well documented um, on their cell phones. So I think there's just a series of new stresses that many generations prior just didn't have to deal with. And it's not like we've um, these have been developed in conjunction with you know parenting experts who've said, hey, let's make sure we're doing this right. I mean, this is just a big a great big experiment um, that parents have you know just you know doing their best, right? But and I think we're starting to get a handle on you know, hey, wait, we need to really limit access early and we need to look at this more carefully. But this generation of kids that have grown up with social media as the you know the first generation in the universe that have that have had access to it. Um, have unfortunately been, you know, part of an experiment, and, and it, it, that experiment is showing that it's really not great for their for their mental health. I, I think. Okay, we, you know, obviously, yeah. I was just going to say we've heard from sociology and we've heard from psychiatry. How about psychology? Heather? Sure. Um, and I actually um, was thinking the exact same thing of what Leslie just talked about in terms of just that immense access to information that our students have excuse me, that our young people have. Um, I guess it, it also really brings to mind too, just more of our minoritized or marginalized populations. Um, so for example, like our LGBTQ population and the students that we have um, and the significant, significant mental health challenges um, those students face. There was a, a study that was done by the Trevor Project just last year that looked at um, it was over 34,000 um, youth that identified as LGBTQ and 70, I want to make sure I get it right, 73% of those students reported experiencing symptoms of anxiety and 58% reported experiencing symptoms of depression, while 45% seriously considered suicide within the past year. Um, but at the same time, 60% of um, queer youth who wanted more mental health or access to mental health care um, reported that they weren't able to get the mental health support that they were seeking. And so I think it's, it's there's certainly not just one factor that you can look at. I think it's so complicated um, just with society, with society and political issues and um, climate change and social media and just access to information that I think it's, it's hitting our youth especially hard, but at the same time, I think it's also hitting certain populations potentially more significantly than others, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that, you know, there's a whole host of reasons, I think, why, you know, our queer youth are really struggling. Um, but it's it's significant, I think, in terms of, you know, just what we're seeing and, and um, the needs that are that are emerging with our youth. Yeah, I want to jump in and be old school for a minute. And that is, I want to go back to what we've known for for at least, you know, 50 years, which is that adverse childhood experiences are closely linked to mental health problems and also to physical health problems. So when we think about poverty, when we think about housing insecurity, when we think about food insecurity, these things really are traumatic and they imprint on kids. And so I think what we've seen in society as social media has grown and all these other things have happened is an increase in income equality in the United States. And that also takes a toll. Yeah. I want to, uh, just on, on this topic of what, what are those pressures, there's a, uh, a documentary that's been produced. Uh, Riley Children's Hospital has been part of, um, part of it looking specifically at the issue of mostly of adolescent um, suicide rates. And and I believe, Leslie, you can probably speak more to this, that it also gets to this question of what, you know, what are, what are our youth experiencing that's leading them to think about, uh, about having suicidal thoughts. Leslie, can you say a little more about that, that it, it's yeah, showing yeah. around the state? Uh, it'll be here in Bloomington at the IU Cinema on Monday night, October 23rd. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's a free event, um, and it's it's not a fundraiser. It's really just trying to raise awareness of the issue. So so please come uh, to that event. Yeah. So a documentary um, film crew um, put together a uh, forty five minute documentary, really actually highlighting uh, the quality issue in child mental health care. And so um, you hear a lot about access and other things, but this one's really focused on quality and safety and how. Um, you know, mental health and, and substance use disorder care um, has not been subject to the same sort of efforts around transparency and rigor that other parts of medicine have. Um, and folk, I, I actually didn't really understand this until I became a department chair and I sit in meetings with the, you know, surgery chairs and the medicine chairs, and they know exactly what percentile they are nationally for every procedure, every, you know, particular outcome. It's just really impressive. And, and the fee 
field of psychiatry has been excluded from um, those efforts nationally, historically. And I think the good news is the, the U.S. News and World Report survey that's very important children's hospitals is actually including behavioral health as a uh, score driving um, area for the first time this year. So I think that really, um, that's, you know, some people in the field are sort of grouchy about it because it's a lot of a lot of work to track these things. But I think it's fantastic news because it means that resources will be allocated in a different way. So it really, um, it's, a, it's a really great film and um, very Indiana centric. So um, that that's what it's about. Yeah. yeah. And it just, I should also mention um, the film starts showing at 6, 6 p.m. On Monday evening, there's a reception prior to it and a panel discussion following it. The, the documentary is about an hour long uh, called Racing to Respond. Uh, so it's, it's well worth catching up with it. Can I jump in with another piece of good news? And I hope Leslie is not going to be mad at me at this. The other great news is that Leslie is the first female chair of psychiatry in the history of the Indiana School of Medicine. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> <laughs> well, and, yeah, and well-deserved and, and maybe does speak to some of the issues of, of just the diversity, inclusion, um, some of the way in which um, these issues do play out differently for different, different kinds of populations. Um, and, and I would add also urban-rural. Uh, and I, I did want to touch on that just briefly as we come toward the end of our hour. Um, Heather, um, anything else you want to add about when you think about resources and availability and so forth uh, across the state in particular um, with respect to uh, urban schools versus rural schools? Um, is, it, is it harder in the rural sure. areas? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's definitely challenges that are posed across settings um, for sure. But I think in terms of um, rural mental health and, and access rates, um, you know, we definitely have fewer services in more rural areas. Um, and I think what Leslie was speaking to earlier, just in terms of access to psychiatry and linking that with um, primary care, I think is so important as a way to address um, as a way to address that need. I think in terms of thinking about rural schools or urban schools, those types of things, I think, um, again, it just goes back to me to the resources and who we have working in our buildings. And so much of that is tied to just the funding that our schools have available to them to be able to hire the personnel that we need to work in those settings. Um, you know, when we look at school-based mental health professionals, the school counselors, the social workers, the school psychologists, all of those are operating at higher than recommended ratios put forth by those, you know, each perspective um, national organization. And so lowering those ratios, which is basically hiring personnel, which comes back to the funding that's allocated, it's all connected. And I think, um, you know, by increasing access to those services, in the communities where our students are, where our families are, I think is so important um, because there are drastic disparities in services. It does yeah. seem to be more so um, in rural areas um, from the research that I'm seeing, but at the same time, the quality of services um, that was spoken to earlier too is so important that just because you have services available doesn't necessarily mean that you're having highly trained, highly qualified providers in those areas, even if there are services available. So um, it's it's a really complicated um, you know, situation to look at, to think about how are we addressing those issues in schools in different areas. And I think, I think we also have to acknowledge the big purple elephant in the room, which is that the cultural climate now, it's a paradox that we care more about mental health and mental health in our children at the same time that we're banning Dr. Seuss and having parents say they want a determined curriculum. So um, we do have a, a battle here that we have to think about the larger climate. It shouldn't be in schools that we're dealing with those political issues, but I'm afraid we are. Bernice, you mentioned COVID before in terms of the, the awareness factor, perhaps, but uh, we have another question that asks about for young people that had a couple of years of COVID, are they seeing more mental health issues and difficulties than perhaps the, the kids before them? We uh, we've actually uh, published a study on this. And um, in fact, the, everybody, there was an increase in depression and isolation, loneliness, but actual depression um, for everybody during COVID, but most significantly among emerging adults. Now, it's come back down for everybody else, but not come down as fast for emerging adults. So it's what I call or think about as a cohort-defining event for them. 
uh, the way that uh, 9-11 was for an earlier cohort or the Vietnam War was for some of us OGs in the room. Um, so I think that this this is had an impact on them. And right now I'm teaching 200 freshmen who were freshmen as COVID hit. And they seem to be more impacted than the other students I've had in the last you know five years that also experienced COVID because I think for them it hit a particularly important developmental time. But again, right. uh, Leslie or Heather would have much better idea about the de- developmental stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was just going to say one thing that I always think is fascinating and worth noting in these kind of conversations is, of course, all of the, you know, environmental, you could say, uh, events occurring, you know, the isolation, the sadness, you know, all of that. In addition, we sort of later learned that the virus literally causes inflammation in the brain and literally can cause depressive symptoms, um, just like it can cause coughs and fevers, right? And so um, a number of studies have now validated that, you know, a lot of cases of suicide are directly attributed to the actual physiological um, effects of the virus. So I think that's just, you know, it's so complex trying to, you know, disentangle this, but that is a part of the story as well when we think about the impact of COVID on mental health. Heather, your your impression of this from your work with schools? Sure. Um, I definitely echo um, what's been said already. I think um, the academic impact, too, of, um, of COVID on students, I think, plays a role, too, in that academics and behavior and social-emotional health are all really closely connected together. And so if you, um, I saw one study, I think if it was earlier this year or last year, that basically said that the academic gains that we had made over the course of the last, you know, several decades, um, a lot of those were wiped out because of COVID with the at-home learning or lack of direct instruction, you know, those types of things. And so I think we're now trying to kind of make our work way back to recovering a lot of that learning loss that took place. And like I said, because it is so entwined, um, you can't just separate out the academics from the behavior, from the mental health and social emotional, um, that I think there's a lot of things at work um, kind of playing together that are kind of impacting that mental health piece too. Um, It's really interesting what Leslie just shared too, in terms of how COVID literally changes um, you know, the brain in such a way that it it's leading to the, the depressive symptomatology, which I hadn't been aware of before, but, um, gosh, it's so complicated <laughs> yes, when we think is. about COVID and how it impacted our youth. We only have about 30 seconds to go and I'm going to give it to Bernice. What's next for Ursa? Uh, let's see. Well, we're going to help the state with uh, understanding, you know, how to, how to you know, deploy these crisis mobile teams in a way. And in 2024, we'll be doing the U.S. National Stigma Studies, um, both a child study and an an adult study. And so we'll get that marker. All right. Thank you to Bernice Pesca-Salito from uh, the Ursa Institute and IU and Heather Ormiston, clinical professor, assistant professor in the IU psychology program, and Leslie Holvershorn, the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at IU. For my co-host, Lori McRobbie, engineer Mike Pashkash and producer Nathan Moore. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.